been thinking all morning, Almighty God, how your Son is exalted as the King, the Lord, the ruler over everyone and everything. And we want to praise you for him. And we want to praise you for his presence with us now, your presence with us by your Spirit. And we pray that you might be at work in us to help us to see him and to help us to see ourselves as we should. And we pray it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 5. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. There's a lot there. I hope you want to keep that passage open in front of you and also to turn to the outline that's on the back of the notice sheet. But let me start by saying that we all know I take it that life is a mixture of joy and pain, of triumphs and of trials. There are moments so wonderful that they take our breath away, and there are times so terrible that they knock the wind out of our sails and leave us gasping. We have experiences in relationships that are so precious that they bring a tear to our eyes, and we have others that produce a very different kind of tears. And what's true of our personal lives is true of the world on the grandest scale. It can be a wonderful, wonderful place. 
But it is never long before we're, we bump into something that leaves us thinking, this just isn't the way that the world should be. And we long for a better life in a better world. Uh, some of you know I didn't grow up as a Christian. One of the most compelling things I discovered about the Bible when I began to in investigate the Christian faith seriously for the first time was the way the, the big storyline of the Bible and its explanation of humanity and what we're like and reality, the world around us, matches our experience of people and of life so perfectly. No other worldview is able to do that. But significantly, I love the way that God's Word also offers hope of a new world that can fulfill the deepest longings of our hearts. And again, there is no other worldview that can do that because it's not hope in a wishful thinking I hope the weather's good tomorrow kind of way this is real certain and verifiable hope that is founded upon and centers upon the historical person of Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection uh, C.S. Lewis has a sentence that takes us almost to the heart of Hebrews chapter 2 he said the Son of God became a man to enable men to become sons of God. I say that's almost Hebrews 2. I want to add a, a, just a little extra layer to it. I don't think he was talking about Hebrews 2, so I'm not trying to say I'm better than C.S. Lewis. But in, in Hebrews 2 in particular, here's my best effort of a summary. The Son of God became a man and died to conquer death and so to enable us to become children of God. Son of man became a child of man to die and conquer death, and so enable us to become children of God. And the aim of our passage is up there in verse 1 of chapter 2. It's where we've been all through our series so far. We must pay much closer attention to what we've heard from and about God's Son, Jesus, lest we drift away from it. Uh, you'll see the two points on the sheet aren't my own, but with apologies to John Milton, the first is paradise lost. Verse 5, now it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we're speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower for a little while, lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. And we start with God's grand design. Uh, the quotation comes from Psalm 8 that we sang, which is a beautiful meditation on the greatness of God and the dignity of humankind. So the psalm starts and ends, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And in between, these verses reflect on the the unique place that God has given to human beings in his world. Um, if you look at human beings organically, I'm told we're 62% water, 16% um, protein, 6% mineral, 1% carbohydrate, and give or take 16% fat. That might vary a little from uh, one to another of us. If you look at us chemically, uh, you could buy the elements that make up the human body, like oxygen and carbon and hydrogen and nitrogen and so on, for about one pound. That's how much we're worth. If you look at us 
cosmically, we're just like the tiniest of ants who wander around on a lonely speck of dust that floats around in the great enveloping darkness of space. So at first glance, when you set us against the the greatness of the cosmos, we human beings are pretty small and insignificant. If there is a God who placed each of the stars in space, if there is a God who is the one through whom and for whom every little bit of everything was made, then we might wonder, what are we? that he could be remotely interested in us and care for us. But a human life is worth so much more than the sum of its chemical parts. So many of the problems in our world come because we've forgotten that about the people around us. But of all of the creatures on earth, we are unique, made in the image of God himself, with an ability to know him personally, and a special commission from him to rule the world under him and for him. Verse 7 says he crowned us with glory and honor. That's not because of our intellect or in proportion to our achievements and wealth and status and beauty. That's because of our unique relationship with him. So he's put everything under humankind's feet all the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, the fish of the sea. God put all of them under our rule and care. That is God's good design for the world. Human beings living in perfect harmony with one another, with our planet, and with our Lord. It's a glorious picture of life as it should be. But of course, it's not life as we know it. And that's our second point here, destruction, the world we see. I wonder if the second half of verse 8 is the least surprising sentence in the Bible. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, to mankind. I know quite a few people who have stopped reading or watching the news uh, because the world that it portrays depresses them far too much. When we open our eyes, what we see is not the world as it should be, but a world that's gone mad. Again, on the the grandest scale, human history is littered with the wreckage of destruction and death. Our own lives, too, are marked by a litany of frustration and futility, sickness and sorrow. Far from seeing human beings ruling the world under God and for God, we see human beings everywhere living for ourselves and ignoring the God who gives us life and breath and everywhere we see death the great puppet master who toys with all of us for a while and then consigns us to our fate it's true that some human beings live long and healthy and happy lives Uh, many don't have that privilege some are relatively good in the way that they treat other people some aren't many aren't Some enjoy great riches in their time on earth. Others never escape the trap of poverty. But we all know that the only place that any of us will ever end up is in a coffin. The Bible says very simply that by nature death reigns because all have sinned 
and that the wages of sin is death. And that's what we see. Whatever the original design, paradise is lost. And we're left longing, I take it, for it to be regained. It's our second major heading, paradise regained. If you wanted another D, like the subpoints under point one, destiny, the world to come. And God's recovery plan comes in two stages. It starts with Jesus, the pioneer, the elder brother, verse 9. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. And then on to verse 14, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, so that through death he might destroy the one who had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. There's some tricky details here. It helps us to keep our eyes on the, the big picture, and we'll do that if we, if we zoom in on one word in verse 10 that's used to describe Jesus, founder. Uh, Jesus is a, a pioneer. He's a trailblazer. Maybe think of the, the founder of a, a big charitable trust or something, someone who gives of themselves sacrificially in order that they can bring enormous benefit and blessing to other people. Or a picture that often comes to my own mind is uh, of a jungle, and there's a group of us who are trapped and lost in the densest part of that jungle with no prospect of mistake, until someone finds us and then uses a machete to, to hack away at the foliage and blaze a trail in front of us that can lead us out to freedom and safety. And God's great plan to undo the mess that we've made of our world and to overcome the curse of sin and death was to send his son into the mess to blaze a trail out of it. Uh, in his own person, we've seen over the last few weeks that God the son is, is far greater than the angels. That's what we've been seeing. He's the eternal and unchanging creator through whom and for whom all things exist. He's the God that even angels worship. He reigns on the throne with his father in heaven. But for 33 years, we know he was willing to set aside the glory of heaven and to be made lower than the angels. And he took on flesh and blood and became a child of man so that we who believe in him might become children of God. And notice how verse 10 draws special attention to Jesus' death when it says he was made perfect through suffering. Uh, it's a phrase that confuses many. It's not suggesting that Jesus somehow became a better person through his suffering, as though morally speaking, because he, he was perfect throughout his life. He was tempted, but he never sinned. It's speaking vocationally, if I can put it like that, saying that it was as Jesus died that he reached his father's intended goal for his life, that his death was the, the moment of his ultimate and perfect consecration to his father and his will perfect obedience. And because the father delighted in the son's obedience, he rewarded it. Verse 9 says he was 
crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. And the point is that as God raised Jesus from the dead, as we've been thinking, as he gave to him the name that is above every name, as he exalted him to his own right hand on high, where he now sits enthroned in the heavens, crowned with glory and honor, and he awaits the day when all of his enemies will be made a footstool for his feet. This is stage one in God's plan to remake the world. The founder, the pioneer, becomes flesh and blood and dies so that he might blaze a trail through death and open a path to glory on the other side. And here's the wonder of wonders. And I hope we'll never tire of hearing this or talking about it together. Because he did all that, it's possible for people like us to follow in his steps and even to be a part of his family. When we were thinking about our human problem a few moments ago, I quoted from the Bible, death reigns because all have sinned and the wages of sin are death. To, again, to try and illustrate it for myself, I've been picturing it in my head as though by nature I'm, I'm locked in a prison cell and the door to the cell has a lock on it called sin. But that's not my only problem because prowling around on the outside of the cell is a prison guard called death. And so all my life I live in fear of death because I know that on the day of his choosing, he can burst into my cell and end my days. And so I sit trapped in a cell of sin and of death. It's not a perfect illustration, but you can see how if I'm to be free, I need a savior who is able both to deal with the lock on the door, sin, and to overcome the prison guard of death. And that is the great achievement of the death of Jesus. Verse 17 tells us how he dealt with the problem of sin. Therefore, Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service of God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. As we read on in Hebrews, we're going to hear loads more about what it means for Jesus to be our faithful high priest. But just for now, notice that as he offered himself on the cross, he paid the price for the sin of anyone who would trust in him in full. The wages of sin is death. And the death he died was the death that we deserve. And he did it so that as many people as believe in him might live for all eternity. Or to put the same thing in different ways, we can say that on the cross, Jesus took the curse that our sins deserve so that we might be blessed. Or that he took the condemnation that our sins merit so that we might be clothed in his righteous perfection. Or he suffered the wrath that was due to our sins so that we might experience his love forevermore. Because as he died, he was paying in full for all of the sins of every one of his people forever in such a way that there is nothing left for us to pay captured well in my favorite verse of the old hymn it is well with my soul we should have been singing it i forgot i'm sorry but it goes like this my sin oh the bliss of this glorious thought 
my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to his cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. Isn't that beautiful? The door to my prison cell was locked shut by sin. But through his death, Jesus blows it off its hinges. In our remaining time, the text has four implications that press this home into our hearts. And again, tells us this is why we need to pay much closer attention. This is why we need to make sure we don't neglect the good news of Jesus Christ. Implication one, we're delivered. Verse 14, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, the devil, and so deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Back in our prison cell, I said we had two problems, not one. There's the the lock of sin on the door, and then there's the guard patrolling outside death. Now it turns out that things are worse still because the guard works for another and the governor of the prison himself is the devil himself. But here's the key thing. The only power that death and the devil could ever have over us is our sin. And because Jesus has dealt with the sin of his people on the cross, then death and the devil have been rendered powerless. And that means the door's now open. And we are free to follow our founder on his road to glory. Uh, As I was reflecting on this, I looked up what some Christians in the past have said as they were approaching their own death to see what this deliverance from the fear of death, to see the difference it made to them on the ground in their last moments. And uh, C.T. Studd, the great missionary to China, said to his friends, be sure to celebrate my funeral and send alleluias all around. It's a better day than my wedding day. The evangelist D.L. Moody, this is my coronation day. I've been looking forward to it for years. The missionary Adoniram Judson, when Christ calls me home, I shall go with the gladness of a boy bounding home from school. I was chatting recently to an older Christian who was updating me on his health and telling me that he thinks he won't be long for this earth. And I must have looked sad because he laughed and said, don't you worry about me. I know where I'm going. I'm going home to be with my Lord. And you know what's great about it is that being delivered from the fear of death doesn't just prepare us for that day itself, but it sets us free to live now, to really live a life of love and of service of our Savior, even if it comes like it did for the Hebrews with a cost. Because what's the worst that can happen? Death. And that is now nothing I need to fear. So why would anyone risk drifting, this is the argument of Hebrews, from the one who has dealt with sin and delivered us from the fear of death? Second implication, we're included. 
Uh, we've spoken of Jesus as the great trailblazer, the founder, the pioneer of our salvation, hacking his way through the jungle, tasting death in order to conquer death so that many others could be join him in the remade and renewed world he came to establish. And that, that corporate language is dotted all through the passage. So in the middle of verse 10, God's purpose is that in sending Jesus to die was to bring many sons to glory. Um, as we often say, it says many sons, that means sons and daughters. The word son is used because in the first century it was only sons who could inherit their father's estate. And we're all heirs of God's heavenly estate if we trust in Jesus. But you see the point, God's eternal purpose wasn't just to bring Jesus himself to glory, but it was that many sinful people like us might be, the, the word used here is sanctified, made fit for heaven, and so free to join Jesus in glory. And so we get this lovely idea of Jesus as our big brother. And there's a, a series of quotations from the Old Testament in verses 12 and 13 that back up the point. But the, the headline is the end of verse 11. Jesus is not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters. And when you think of all of your sin, or when I think of all of mine, and if God counted our sins against us, not one of us could stand. But because Jesus paid for them all in full, we've been washed completely clean and adopted into Jesus' family. And he's now proud in a crowd of people to point us out to someone else and to say, she's my sister. He's my brother. So why would anyone risk drifting away from the one who's dealt with sin and included us in his family. Implication three, we're helped. Uh, we'll get lots more of this in chapter four and as we go on in Hebrews, but see verse 18, for because Jesus himself was suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So remember the Hebrews, uh, feeling weak, feeling weary in faith because of the hard times they've endured, tempted to drift away from Jesus to a more socially acceptable form of religion. And what they need is help. They need someone who's been there and done it. They need someone who understands what they're going through and who, significantly who is able to give them strength to keep going. And Jesus is the great helper we need. You can picture him in Gethsemane, so traumatized by all that he's about to suffer that his sweat becomes like drops of blood falling to the ground. But he remains faithful and he triumphs over sin and death. And now he reigns at the Father's side where he prays for us continually. And so as we lean on him, he now helps us to stand firm and to keep putting one foot in front of the other all the way to glory. I love that. Whatever is tempting you right now, whatever struggles you are facing in your faith or for your faith, the Lord Jesus knows, the Lord Jesus loves you, 
The Lord Jesus is praying for you right now. And as you consider him and fix your eyes on him, he will give you the help, the grace, the mercy you need to keep going one day at a time. Final implication, and I hope you will take some time this week to stop and think about each of these in turn and to talk about them with friends, to give thanks to God for them. We will be glorified. Uh, back at the start, I shared my summary of Hebrews 2. The Son of God became a man and died to conquer death and so enable us to become children of God. I think I should have added a few words at the end. He had denied to enable us to become children of God on the road to glory. Because God's grand plan is for paradise to be regained. And the reality of the perfect world for which we long will become our reality. There will be a, a family of men and women from every tribe and tongue and nation, more than anyone could number, who will share in the glory of our elder brother, Jesus, and will rule a perfectly renewed heaven and earth under him and for him. And friends, if we believe and trust in Jesus, this is our future. Glory with him. And if you've never trusted and believed in Jesus, but you were to do so today, you could know for certain that it would be your future personally as well. Your sin paid for. Death defeated for you. And the pathway opened for you to join Jesus in glory. Because he paid for our sins in full, we know as Christians that we are on the road to glory. Not because of ourselves. We could never have got there on our own. No one else could ever have got us there either. But Jesus is able to save to the uttermost, says Hebrews, all those who believe. And again, the big point of Hebrews, it's because our salvation is so great that we need to make sure that we don't neglect it, but we pay much closer attention to him and we consider Jesus. Let's pray together. It's not hard for us, our Father, to call to mind evidence of the mess of our world on the grandest scale or even in our own lives. And so we're profoundly grateful that the mess is not the end of the story and that death is not the end of the story, but that you sent your Son into the world into the mess in order to die so that there might be a truly happy ending for all who believe in him. Thank you for him. Thank you for his willingness to die. Thank you for his resurrection, his exaltation to your right hand, for the confidence that gives us. Thank you that he has blazed the trail. Thank you that even now we know that we have been delivered from fear of death, from the power of the devil. Thank you that we know we have been included. Thank you that he is able to help us one day at a time, moment by moment, to keep trusting in him. And thank you that we will be glorified one day. And as we praise you for all that we already have and all that is to come, 
We ask you, therefore, to help us to fix our eyes on him and to keep listening to him rather than to the many other voices of our world so that we might keep trusting and not neglect what we've heard but pay much more careful attention to it. Help us, please, to consider him. In Jesus' precious name, amen.